My name is Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Months Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the months ahead. You can expect a focus on issues with a broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will make sure that you know more than your friends and colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For February's edition, we will focus on the upcoming presidential primaries in the US, the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and Indonesia's presidential election. This February, we are going to have a range of presidential primaries in different American states, which, to be fair, is really just an excuse for us to talk about the broader US election. Because with the start of the new year, the attention of Boris, the American public, along with much of the world, really has turned to the US presidential election, which is going to take place on the 5th of November. While nothing is certain in politics, the current polls and the fundraising data is suggesting that a rematch of President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump is the most likely scenario come November. To talk about all of this, I have Aaron Cadell with me, the head of our US office in Washington, D.C. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Isabel. Sorry, this is not going to be the last time that we talk about the US election on here. But because it's still quite far away, I don't want to get into the big million dollar question of who might win. Instead, Erin, I would love you to talk me through some of the key dates and events that we should look out for as the election campaign really gets going in 2024. Sure. Thanks, Isabel. Thanks, everybody, for listening. So let's look first at the next couple of months, which will really determine the first the Republican nominee. We've already had one key vote here this past week with uh, Trump winning the Iowa caucuses, which are the first in the nation caucuses. He won by a lot. He got 51% of the vote. There are really kind of two other candidates in the race. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, she finished third. And then Ron DeSantis, who is the current governor of Florida, he finished second at 21%. But Trump won by a lot, which was in line with the polls. On January 23rd, we'll have the New Hampshire primary. Haley is actually running fairly close, well, about maybe 10, 14 points behind Trump in New Hampshire. If she wins, certainly, or comes in quite close, that could be a big boost for her campaign. But then very quickly, it becomes more of a national race. We'll have South Carolina in early February, Nevada in February, and Michigan. But then on Super Tuesday, which is March, March 5th, there are 15 states all across the country, California, Texas, Virginia, North Carolina, very much becomes a national race. And so if Haley does start gaining some momentum in the next couple of weeks, she'll have to move very much to a national campaign. A big advantage that Trump has is he has the name recognition of nearly everybody, and he has a national organization that he built from running in 2016 and 2020 that will really come to be a big advantage in that national race that comes to a head on Super Tuesday on March 5th. So the race could be over, at least on the Republican side, by that date. After that, we'll have the nominating conventions by the respective parties. The Republican convention is in July and the Democratic convention is in August. The interesting thing, Isabel, is that you will have the various cases that are moving through the courts against Trump, which could go to trial before the convention after he has won the nomination. By law, he can still run even as a convicted felon, but it has never happened before. It certainly hasn't happened in, I think, more than 100 years. There was a candidate who ran for prison in the Socialist Party in 1920, but it's been a long time since we've had that. So that will be a, another point in which the Republican electorate will have to uh, reaffirm that it wants to, uh, to stick with Trump, even if, say, he is convicted in one of these cases. So both a very interesting February, but then also 
we've got the big focus in March on Super Tuesday where we have those 15 states voting. And we might really see the Republican primary being wrapped up by then and the conventions in July and August. And of course, these cases against Trump. But I don't want to start with Trump. I actually want to start with Biden. I'd be curious to get your take on what you think some of his key domestic and foreign policy themes might be as he runs for presidency again. So one, I, th- I think it's an important point to make that incumbent presidents usually win re-election in the US. Trump was an exception to that. And some other presidents who've had recessions in roughly the first or the last 12 months before they run for election. That did include Trump, who had a recession that was largely driven by COVID, but was certainly a, a factor in not winning re-election. But in any event, Biden does face a low approval rating and a number of challenges. There were people who in the Democratic Party who've called for him not to run because of age and other issues, but he's clearly running and he has a lot to to run on. A domestic record that includes the Inflation Reduction Act, quite controversial globally for its kind of America first policies, even promulgated by a Democratic president. But that has authorized hundreds of billions of dollars to be spent on the, on the American economy, a lot in renewables projects, many of these in Republican-leaning states, Kansas, Nebraska, Georgia. Uh, so that's an important bill for, for President Biden. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Act is putting a lot of money into roads and bridges and highways and other similar projects, broadband access for rural areas. The American Rescue Plan, which was passed coming out of uh, COVID as Biden was, was, first, was first coming into office in 2021, is as we're working through COVID, that is continuing to allocate, get billions of dollars for public schools throughout the throughout the U.S. So he'll run on this kind of activist fiscal agenda, along with being kind of the protector of democracy, as he would say, relative to the chaos and, and anti-democratic tendencies that he will argue are supported by Trump. We saw that just a couple weeks ago on the third anniversary of January 6th, the attack on the Capitol, which is led by President Trump, or at least incited by it. On that date, just a couple weeks ago, Biden gave a major speech about the importance of preserving democracy at Valley Forge, which was the site of one of the big battles of the American Revolution hundreds of years ago. So Biden will clearly try to draw a distinct comparison between himself and uh, and Trump in that way. So Biden clearly has a strong record to run on both on his legislative record, the IRA, you mentioned the infrastructure bill, and of course, his economic record. Uh, We'll see how the economy looks by the time we get to election day. But so far, I think the US has outperformed expectations. And then, of course, his democratic credentials, which I guess are one of the biggest contrasts with Trump. And speaking of Trump, I think we now have no choice but to talk about what we think a Trump presidency in 2025 could look like. How might he differ from Biden? How might he differ from his own previous record? What do you think are the big topics here domestically and abroad? So I I do think that Trump's first term from 2017 through 2021 is a good place to start. There were really a few key themes, and I think he would return to those themes. He's clearly talked about those as he started campaigning. One is a big focus on trade. He imposed tariffs on China, which Biden has continued, by the way. He imposed tariffs on other countries as well, including European countries, European goods. He would continue to push on the on the trade front to try to be more protectionist and quote, quote unquote protect America. One of his key advisors is Robert Lighthizer, who is his US trade representative in this first term and has continued as one of his key policy advisors may very well take a senior position in a second term. And so that pro-America trade policy would be one characteristic. Another one is is on immigration. Uh, Obviously, a big focus is on the US-Mexico border. 
and very controversial, whether we put up the wall that, that Trump had promised first time around. It's a big problem for, for Biden and for, for the U.S. at this moment with a, a lot of uh, just illegal immigrants coming in, you know, coming to the country. What's what's up with them? Trump would have a, a much more aggressively anti-immigrant approach than, than Biden, not just with the southern border, but with workers and other folks coming in from, from other countries as well, even, even students. We've seen some more pressure on granting visas. We saw some of that during uh, Trump's first term, even aside from, uh, from COVID, when uh, lots of immigration was, was restricted. And last, but certainly not least, and importantly for uh, our international audience, Trump would clearly have a more isolationist and less interventionist approach than Biden. Even the Republican GOP, which Trump does not have a vote in Congress, but the House Republicans declined to provide more military aid to Ukraine following a request from Biden just late last year. There would be there would be a lot more of that. And a big question would be whether the U.S. would withdraw from NATO. I think we we need another podcast to determine <laughs> to dive into that question. But clearly, Trump has talked about that on the on the campaign trail as one of his most priorities. It was one of one of the things that he worked on a lot when he would come to Europe when he was president, and he would clearly return to that theme if he were returned to the White House. So very clearly, America first will be the big theme of a new Trump presidency should it occur, because that really encapsulates both his views on, on trade, on immigration, and also his views on international alliances and where the US should or shouldn't get involved. You touched on a letter being particularly important for international observers. And speaking of international observers, I think one of the most baffling things for people outside of the US has really been Trump's staying power, especially with his many scandals, his controversies, and now, of course, the criminal accusations against him. Could you try and unravel this a little bit for us? What is behind that? What explains that? Obviously, Trump draws an incredible amount of attention. And I think one key factor is that he just kind of controls the, the media narrative, particularly in the US, but globally to a degree as well, in a way that nobody has before. And I, I think it'd be hard to find somebody who will subsequently just the unique ability to say things that get your followers to love you more and get the people who hate you to hate you more. Um, he seems to even kind of revel in that and uh, be up late at night posting way. And so I'm sure there are lots of people in the mainstream media who don't like Trump, would not vote for him, but love the, the ratings that he drives to their TV network or to their newspaper and the ease with which they can write a story based on some crazy thing that he says, it means a lot, just kind of dominating the dominating the news cycle. I don't think we, we can dismiss that. But second, and maybe more importantly, many of his policies are more, more popular in the US than many people certainly overseas would acknowledge. I think many of our listeners will have come to know the interventionist globalist America that kind of dominated the post-World War II era of you know the Marshall Plan of rebuilding Europe and going to rebuild, going to the Balkans or to build a vast military network throughout Asia. And there's been a major shift, not just in Republicans, but across America in our willingness to be the global policeman or the global economic engine or the global diplomat for the world. A big formative experience for Say my parents' generation was the lost war in Vietnam and the social chaos that that engendered here in the U.S. And then for my generation, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which again, we, Iraq was generally thought of as, as a failed war, a, a diplomatic failure to go find these weapons of mass destruction that did not exist. And then Afghanistan, a literal 20-year escapade that yielded not much except an embarrassing withdrawal just a couple of years ago, handing the country back to the Taliban. So Trump, whether you don't like him or like him, taps into that reluctance to engage certainly militarily abroad as well as economically. The most polls would suggest that most Americans do not support further aid to Ukraine if it is couched as 
should you, would you rather kind of take care of a uh, business here at home? You have that, have that sentiment and whether you're a war veteran who's come back from Iraq and Afghanistan or part of the middle class that's been really constrained over now many decades through inflation and jobs moving overseas, manufacturing, moving to other countries, that spirit really does, uh, does pervade a lot, of, a lot of America. And Trump just captures that really, really well to, uh, to a lot of advantage and it's reshaped the modern Republican Party in his image. Well, thanks very much for helping us understand this better, Aaron. I can't wait to talk about this more as we get closer to the election. But for now, thanks very much, Aaron. Great to have you. Thanks a lot. Since 2004, Indonesian citizens have been able to vote directly for a president. And in those 20 years, the outcome of elections in Indonesia has garnered more and more international interest, given that Indonesia is the largest market in Southeast Asia. This year's presidential election is scheduled for February the 14th, and we'll see approximately 204 million voters eligible to cast a ballot. And we're looking at a three-way presidential race. We have Prabowo Subianto, the current defense minister and a very seasoned politician. We have the former Central Java governor, Ganja Pranovo, and the ex-Jakarta governor, Anis Baswedan. To talk about all of this, I have Dedi Donato with me from our Singapore office, who is following this very closely. Hi, Dedi. Hi, Isabel. Thanks for having me. So let's jump in. Could you help us to get to know the three top candidates better? What are their platforms? Who's considered establishment? And who represents the opposition? I'll begin with the first candidate, Prabowo Subianto. He is a retired four-star military general. He currently serves as the defense minister and leads the nationalist Gerindra party. With a seasoned political career, he has participated in three previous presidential elections in 2009, 2014, and 2019. This time, he is running with Gibran Rakabuming Raka, who is the eldest son of current president Joko Widodo. The second contender is Ganjar Pranowo. He is the former governor of central Java, the third most populous province in Indonesia. He aligns himself as a loyalist of the ruling Indonesian Democratic Party of Struggle, or PDIP, and he has an extensive background in lawmaking and bureaucracy. The third candidate is Anis Baswedan. He is the former governor of Jakarta. He previously served as an education minister, and he is widely known for his robust academic track record. So both Prabowo and Ganjar run on a promise of continuity, indicating their commitment to uphold and build upon the policies initiated by Jokowi over the past decade. In contrast to Prabowo and Ganjar, Anis positions himself as an opposition candidate, and he has been critical towards Jokowi's policies, such as the decision to shift the capital city from Jakarta to Nusantara in Borneo. Okay, so we have two different candidates who broadly represent continuity. We've got Subianto, who is on his fourth attempt at the presidency. We have Pranobo, and then on the other side, um, Baswedan, who represents more of a, of a challenge to the current president and his legacy. I'd be curious to hear what the polls are saying right now. Is anyone very clearly in the lead? And um, maybe in addition to that, I'd be curious about the election rules. Is it enough to win a simple majority or do you have the possibility of a runoff if nobody passes that mark? As per the most recent polls released in mid-January, the Prabowo-Gibran ticket is leading with 46% of the votes. They are clearly on the lead. Nonetheless, this percentage falls short of the required 50% needed for an outright win. And according to the election laws, in cases where no candidate secures more than 50% of the votes, a second round of voting between the top two candidates is compulsory. 
So with a runoff becoming increasingly likely, a clear picture of whether Ganjar or Anis will secure second place has yet to emerge. This uncertainty persists because the gap in the share of votes between these two contenders remains narrow, ranging from only 2% to 3%. Anticipated changes within the next three weeks before the election day are possible, as each candidate has recently commenced their door-to-door campaign at the grassroots level. So it sounds like it's still all to play for for second round. We've got Prabowo clearly in the lead, but with a second round runoff more likely, we could either see Ganja or Baswedan make it to that second round and clearly a lot still um, to, to be decided in the next few weeks. I'd also be curious to talk to you about something else that we've been hearing. It's that President Joko Widodo seems to favor Prabowo over the other two candidates. Is that because he thinks that Prabowo is capable of continuing his own legacy? Or is there something else behind that subtle support towards Prabowo? I think Jokowi's uh, partiality towards Prabowo underscores a strategic move to ensure Jokowi's political survival after leaving the presidency. On the one hand, Jokowi seems to have accepted the fact that PDIP the party to which he still belongs, is not the ideal platform for achieving his political ambitions. The party remains under the significant influence of the party matriarch, Megawati Sukarnoputri, with whom Jokowi had discords for the past several months. Without the support from PDIP, Jokowi chooses to ally with Prabowo, who is betting his odds on the presidential election for the fourth time. For Jokowi, working together with Prabowo seems to be the only path to ensure the political survival of both him and his family. On the other side of the coin, having Jokowi on his side, together with Jokowi's son, who seems to be appealing among young voters, is significantly important for Prabowo to win the election this time around. So certainly a mixture of both sort of maintaining the political legacy and maybe some of the big um, proposals that he's pushed for, as well as sort of having an eye on his own post-presidency position and survival. Not uncommon around the world. I think you definitely do see that sometimes that presidents do ally themselves with people who they believe might then help them in the post-presidency transition, which is uh, never easy once you've been in power for, for quite a while. If the probable Gibran ticket wins, I'd be curious to talk about what that means for corporates and investors in Indonesia. Are there any specific risks or developments that they should be mindful of and look out for? If Prabowo and Gibran win the election, it would signal a high level of policy continuity. Prabowo and Gibran are likely to continue with the promotion of value-added uh, manufacturing, attracting investment in electric vehicles to capitalize on Indonesia's abundant nickel and cobalt reserves. The resulting impact of this policy includes the continuation of economic nationalism and export restrictions on raw materials. Prabowo and Gibran are expected to follow in Jokowi's footsteps by forming a broad party coalition to ensure political stability. The nine coalition parties supporting Prabowo are likely to maintain a robust majority in the legislature, potentially resulting in a weak parliamentary opposition. So this scenario presents a twofold challenge for both corporates and investors. On one hand, businesses could benefit from increased policy certainty, as the lack of significant opposition might facilitate the smooth passage of bills, assuming the government remains pro-business and pro-investment. However, Due to the absence of opposition control, this also means that policy outcomes may tend to favor specific stakeholders with strong political connections to the government. 
And Prabo and Gibran are also anticipated to maintain positive economic relations with China, building upon the diplomatic ties established by Jokowi. Nevertheless, this would be tempered by efforts to strengthen ties with major powers, such as the U.S. and other emerging markets as a way to prevent excessive reliance on China. So the following years will be an interesting period to see how the new leader of the largest market in Southeast Asia navigates the increasingly turbulent world. Very interesting. So Boris, policy continuity, especially the focus on manufacturing that we've seen under Jokowi, especially if we do have that strong parliamentary backing for um, Prabowo that we're currently expecting. But also interesting to hear that there could be more of a diversification of foreign relations, which is uh, definitely something we have seen um, other emerging markets, foreign, other emerging markets and frontier markets do in the last few years. And I think which we should definitely expect more of. Doesn't mean you're alienating China, but you're certainly hedging your bets and see, uh, seeking some, some other friends. Well, thanks very much, Daddy. It's been fascinating. We look forward to the election and then possibly the second round runoff. Thank you. Thanks, Isabel. The 24th of February will be the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The war seemed to reach a bit of a standstill towards the end of last year, but then we just had a really significant Ukrainian initiative in late January. This whole time over the past two years, my colleagues in the Europe and Eurasia team have been monitoring the situation really closely and they're producing regular updates on diplomatic initiatives and Ukraine's reconstruction and a lot more. To discuss all of this, I have Magnus Oberman from the team with me. Hi, Magnus. Hi, Isabel. It's great to be back on the show. So, Magnus, I'm really curious to hear your view about where we are in the war, which developments to expect this year, and how they will affect decision-making in business and policy circles. I want to start with a sort of standard question in this podcast. And, of course, all wars and every war matters. But why would you say does this particular anniversary matter? Thanks for this question, Isabel. Actually, we're talking about two anniversaries here. So the 24th of February 2024 will mark two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and almost to the day, 10 years since Russia invaded Ukraine for the first time. So this is about the starting point of the war. Now, let me zoom out a little bit to talk about the outcome of the war and why it will matter. You probably remember... Uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's notion of a Zeitenwende or sea change that he said the war was in early February 2022. Now, 2022 was not a sea change because there was a new war in Europe. In fact, there were many armed conflicts in the world and even in Europe since the Cold War ended. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a sea change because it tries to reintroduce the use of force as a legitimate means of exercising geopolitical power. So the Ukraine war matters not because it symbolizes that war has returned, but rather that geopolitics has returned. The war is a brutal message that geopolitics trumps geoeconomics with all those wonderful economic interdependencies that we thought would guarantee peace and prosperity. This is also why the war will not only shape international politics in the next few years, but over the next decades, maybe even the whole century. Now, I know this sounds slightly exaggerated, but let's imagine what happens if Russia wins and governments worldwide conclude that they can get away with invading their neighbors. We have already seen since 2022 that the threshold for waging war has been lowered, especially to solve long-standing territorial conflicts. And now let's think about what this would mean for other territorial conflicts, for example, Taiwan. 
many new territorial conflicts over natural resources could crop up as well as the climate emergency worsens. Those are some really good points, Magnus, and thanks for reminding me that this is actually a dual anniversary, not just of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, but also the invasion of Crimea. And you're right to point out that this is this return of geopolitics was probably one of the most marked change in the last two years. We've been hearing this from clients, from corporates, from investors, from, from everyone. And so do you think this anniversary of the war should really remind businesses and investors that the war's outcome will have major repercussions for the post-war world as well as for the post-war world? Yes, exactly. I think the Ukraine war is a geopolitical litmus test for the new international order. Will it be one in which war is outlawed, like since the end of the Cold War, or not? This has direct implications for businesses and trade, because the underlying assumptions of policies like decoupling or de-risking is that it is no longer safe to trade with everyone. There will be a sphere where it is safe to trade and invest with your geopolitical partners and allies. And there will be a sphere where it is less safe or even unsafe. These increasingly unsafe areas for US and European businesses and investors are the most dynamic ones, uh, at least currently. So there's a little bit of a problem for them here. It is almost certain that the new international economic orders will be more resilient, but also less efficient than what we had in recent decades. And climate change puts a big question mark behind our assumptions how large a lack of efficiency we can afford. Let's think about critical raw materials in China, for example. This trend is by no means irreversible. But if Russia wins, the genie won't go back into the bottle. The New York Times recently got hold of documents from the Russian Security Council, which clearly say that Russia wants to destabilize the US dollar as global reserve currency and create a new world order. Putin is openly talking in these world order terms as well. And I'm afraid if he's successful, it is highly likely that we will see more wars and that it will make it even more difficult to adapt to other global challenges. Now, obviously, the outcome of the war will also determine when and how Ukraine's reconstruction can start in earnest. This will be a huge business development chance for companies and investors worldwide, but particularly the ones in Europe and the US. I like this characterization of the war and the outcome of the war as a geopolitical litmus test for, as you say, not one international order, but possibly a plurality of international orders. And it really did kickstart this concept of friendshoring, of relying more on resilient, closer, shorter supply chains. But of course, that does come with a trade-off for, for efficiency. And thanks very much for putting all of this in a broader perspective. But I'd like to talk a little bit more about the actual war itself for a moment. Can you tell me a bit more about kind of where we are in the war? Do you have any idea how it might end, when it might end? Is there anything we can say on that front? Well, the short but honest answer is no. Nobody knows if 20%, 50%, or 70% of the war is over. Nevertheless, this year will be important, and that is because of the many elections this year. There's a presidential election in March, even though we can predict the outcome with a high degree of confidence, and uh, this is, of course, not a democratic or competitive process. Then we have a real election or real elections in, in the EU in June, but most importantly, the US presidential election in November, which will determine on how much more US military aid Ukraine can count. Now to your question how the war could end. Maybe through a ceasefire and a diplomatic settlement? 
And the medium term, perhaps, a lot of diplomacy is going on around the clock behind the scenes. Switzerland has recently agreed at the World Economic Forum and at Davos to host an international conference this year, which will be based on the many discussions among national security advisors last year. But there's obviously the long-term question of how sustainable a ceasefire would be. Would it lead to peace? And would that peace hold? There are basically two schools of thought here, and you can judge yourself whose argument has the greater merit. On the one hand, the hopefuls say that uh, Putin will be reasonable and content himself with what he has conquered so far. Following this line of argument is basically saying that Putin should be given the benefit of the doubt, hoping that geoeconomics will ultimately win back the upper hand over geopolitics and territorial conquest. On the other hand, the realists, if we want to call them like that, say that even talking about the benefit of the doubt is naive and that the only thing that matters is if Russia can physically continue the war. But even in case of negotiations, and most wars ultimately end with negotiations, let's be clear that this narrative of the West splitting Ukraine is a little bit misleading. Ukraine will not be partitioned because that implies there would be two Ukraines after the war. That's not the case. In fact, Russia has already annexed the parts of Ukraine that it has occupied now, albeit only partially. And that process is not called partitioning a country. It's called theft, theft by Russia. Again, some very interesting points, Magnus. And I think you point out rightly that all of this is made particularly poignant because we have these elections coming up this year. Erin and I are talking about the US election but also the EU elections, and all of this will have repercussions for support for Ukraine. Elections in Russia, of course, will likely have a very foregone conclusion. Then this international conference in Switzerland and big questions about how realistic a ceasefire or a diplomatic settlement could be. I'd like to finish on a look ahead. Are there any other landmarks that our listeners or our clients should look out for and pay particular attention to as the year continues? Yes, absolutely. One uh, very soon, for example, the Special European Council on the 1st of February. The big question here is the 50 billion euros aid package for Ukraine, if it will be agreed, and if there will be any news on Ukraine's EU membership application. Investors should also watch the situation in the Middle East very carefully, which is shifting attention and possibly military supplies away from Ukraine, um, especially as the US is concerned. Russian designs for a new world order are primarily a test for the US, so it is absolutely crucial to watch which other players are testing the US. One country that comes to mind here is Iran because of what's going on in the Middle East at the moment, but also because Russia and Iran are solidifying their partnership. Maybe it's too early to talk of an alliance, but they will sign a defense treaty soon. And this could just be a declaration of principles or a technical agreement between the foreign and defense ministries, like the one that Russia has signed with Serbia in 2022. But it could also be a more programmatic and ambitious pact that would make regional geopolitics even more unpredictable and indeed dangerous. Very good point that it is never possible to look at any of these things in isolation when talking about what US support for um, Ukraine might look like. We have to take into account how much support is being taken up by, by the Middle East and making sure that this conflict is contained. We have seen how easy it is for things to escalate currently in the Red Sea. Well, thanks very much, Magnus. Um, we'll be watching closely and I know your team will be too. Sorry, thanks very much for joining again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. On this note, we are at the end of this episode of the Global Months Ahead podcast, and we are clearly looking at a very interesting February. 
We will see what the primaries bring in the US and how the campaigns will unfold from there. We will continue to follow how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is shaping geopolitics and contributing to the creation of new global orders, and whether any of the three contenders manages a victory in the first round of the Indonesian presidential election. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you, Erin, Daddy and Magnus, and thanks to you for listening.